0: I'm going to read just two verses today, back in Matthew chapter 24, after a little break. Beginning in verse 4. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your tender love and compassion towards your people. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you would care that you would even care what we believe or where we go, what we do. But not only that you would care, but that you would say it and you would have it preserved in writing for every generation to see that you care that we are led properly. And you've given us warning after warning after warning to watch out. Lord, I pray that this congregation would be a people who are watching out. Lord, I pray for these people that they would not be led astray. You know, Father, they hear far more voices throughout the week than than mine. This is a work that only you can do, Father. So teach us from your word. Holy Spirit, give us understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our text opens up with the words, And Jesus... Answered them. So this obviously draws out a little bit of a recap from where we've been. We've taken five weeks off, and and prior to that we did look at these things many times. But there at the end of chapter 23, remember all the way through 24-2, Jesus promised judgment upon rebellious and wicked Israel. He promised that the blood that had been shed in the persecution of the prophets from the earliest days, the first prophet all the way through Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, would come upon this generation. Those are his words. This generation. That would be the then living generation. This judgment would come within 30 to 40 years. We see in 24... Two, Jesus promised, not one stone of the buildings of the temple would be left standing upon another that would not be thrown down. This would be the judgment. Because of the wickedness of this nation, because of their persistent rebellion and rejection of the Word of God and their persecution of the prophets of God, Jesus says... I'm walking out. The glory of the Lord is departing from this people, from this house, and judgment will come upon Jerusalem, that ancient place where God had made His name to dwell, and this temple that had been the symbol of God's dwelling with His people will be destroyed. And all of that will come upon this generation. And then in verse 3 of this chapter, the disciples Asked with some assumptions, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And we talked about their assumptions. They more than likely assumed if Jerusalem was to be judged or or Israel was to be judged and the temple destroyed, that this would mean the end of the world, the end of the age. And so, they asked, When will this be? What will be the sign of your coming? What will be the end of the age? We talked about presuppositions and and pessimism. Now, that word pessimism, more than likely for Jews of this day, was a pessimism aimed at the rest of the world. They would have probably assumed... If the end of the world is coming, the Jewish state will finally be reestablished as the, 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 the authority over the whole earth. We see this, I've said many times, played out all the way up to the resurrection and right before the ascension when the apostles asked, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? They had not, even at that point, understood that the kingdom was not of this world. So they would have thought, well, the end of everybody else is coming. We're about to be exalted to our rightful place as a head over all of the nations. And so they asked these questions. The Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, is the Lord's answer to these questions in such a way that will clear up the confusion and prepare them for what is ahead. If you think in your mind well, the end of everything's coming and we're about to be put in our rightful place over everyone and then that doesn't happen, well, you would, you would have reason for uh, fear and dread. And so he speaks to clear all that up. In verses 4 through 14, the Lord Jesus describes what will be the overall condition of the world until the destruction of Jerusalem. These things are not to be confused. This is what is mind-blowing about the state of our current ev- evangelical, however you want to, whatever you want to call it, culture. If you take these things to be a reference to the entirety of the church age, that's fine. I believe they apply. If you take these things to be limited to the specific context of the the years up to the destruction of Jerusalem, either way, verse 6 still says, The end is not yet. Verse 8 still says, All these are but the beginning of birth pains. So what he is about to describe, and this is, we need to understand this, We could break up into two main categories. These things that will characterize the world of the disciples after the ascension of Christ. These things we will see will also characterize the world of all believers until Christ returns. The New Testament gives gives us that. Two categories, false teaching and genuine trials or true trials. False teaching, true trials... And those trials will be trials in the world and they will be trials in the church. we can look at them very quickly. There will be false teaching or false messiahs. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be natural disasters. There will be persecution. There will be betrayal and apostasy and lawlessness. The gospel will go forth to the nations. And all of that means absolutely nothing with respect to when Jesus is going to come back, he says these things must take place, but the end is not yet. I believe one thing we can glean just just preemptively from the Olivet discourse is when Jesus comes back, nobody's going to question whether or not Jesus came back, right. and we don't know when that's going to be. All of these things that current teachers, writers, authors, television hosts look at and they say, well, look at that, and look at that, and look at that, and look at that, and look at that. that." Jesus said, yeah, look at it, and the end is not yet. So let's get that, that. That's a major point that we need to understand here as we walk through these things is no matter how you read this section, either up until 70 AD or extending until Christ's return, either way, it doesn't mean that he's coming back at any specific time. They are not a clue. To when Christ will come back. So then, today we're going to look at this warning against false teaching that finds itself manifested in a proliferation of false Christs. First, we'll see the clear command, and second, we'll see the reason for the command. Number one, then, a clear command namely, to guard against being diverted from the path of truth. Jesus says in verse 4, See that no one leads you astray. The word see means see with the eyes. But here, as it is often used metaphorically, it means to be watchful to do something. If you think about this just for a second... If you're seeing something with your physical eyes, even metaphorically, you are ensuring or or that that fact ensures that you are personally attentive. That you are involved, that you are watching to make sure that a thing is done. And so to see that means to personally attend to a task. Here's an illustration. A general contractor will very often place a foreman who works for him over an entire construction site. Now this foreman will not take part in every single duty on the site. His job is to see it through. That would be the language that we might use. See it through to the end of the construction And so he has his eyeballs on the laborers, but he's not doing their job. He has his mind on the blueprints, but he's not telling everybody what they need to be doing. Everybody should have their own set. He has his schedule to to receive shipments of materials here and there. He will be communicating with subcontractors. He's going to talk to the plumbers, he's going to talk to the electrician, he's going to talk to the framers. His job is not to do everything, his job is just to see to it that the job is getting done. That's that's sort of the language here. And so this seeing, see that, or see to it that requires an attitude of self-determination. You have to say, I'm gonna see that it gets done. It requires investment of time and effort. If this is your, if you, if you've been given this command, see to it. You have to say, well, then I'm gonna I'm gonna do whatever is required of me to see it through. You have to have a an attentive and or an active and personal attention to the task at hand. You say within yourself, I will be actively, personally engaged at this task before me to its completion. See that. In other words, when he says, when our Lord says, See that, he is establishing a duty, a job, something his disciples must do. He's saying, see that this gets done. Do whatever is required of you. Be actively and personally engaged and laboring at the task. Give yourself to this work. Now, what is the duty? See that no one leads you astray. Now, think about that word, astray. It's not describing that furry thing that sleeps on my porch in the the front of the house, it's astray. This is one word, astray. A couple of examples of this word. Exodus 23 and verse 4. This should just paint a picture in the, in the Greek Old Testament. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back. So you found it out here and you've got to bring it back. That word going astray, same word. Deuteronomy 27 and verse 18 Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. Now, put that picture in your mind. You come up to the man, you take him by the hand. Where would you like to go, sir? Well, I would like to go into town. And then you lead him off into the woods. You're leading him astray. You're misleading him. Matthew 18 and verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray... Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? You see the picture here. This word astray means to be diverted from the way, diverted from the good path or, or from the path of your intentional destination. It's to wander away from the realm of safety and into harm's way if you're a sheep. If something goes astray that assumes that there is a path, that there there is a good good path, an intended destination, a, a place of safety where you want to be, and then you're diverted from that. Jesus gives this command. See that no one leads you astray. So here, he's not under the assumption that you're intentionally going astray. No one wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, today... I'm diverting from truth. I'm going off into error. Let's just see how far I can go. No one does that. See that no one leads you. Here, you, the disciple, would be passively following another who leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. And so our Lord gives us a clear command to action. The disciple of Christ is to be on the offensive guarding themselves against anyone who would seek to divert them from the pathway of truth and righteousness, the good way, the right destination, the place of safety, the the way of the godly, the narrow path of godliness. This is a command. It's an imperative. It's a duty. Just like you shall not murder, here's a duty. See to it that no one leads you astray. Then secondly, we see the reason for the command. Namely, that there will be many false Christs who will lead many astray. See that no one leads you astray for... Here's why you need to attend to this duty. Here's why you need to set yourself to this labor. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. Now notice what he says. Many will come in my name. Not a few. There will not be a shortage of false Christs and false teachers. It will be a common thing. Not just here and there. But there will be an abundance of false teachers, false professors, false Christs. They will come in my name, he says, saying, I am the Christ. And that that claim... I am the Christ, is how he is defining them coming in his name. They will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the anointed one of God, and they will lead many astray. This, for many of us, sounds absurd. But they will have success If someone came to me and said, Hello, I'm Jesus Christ, I would say, No, you're a lunatic. But they're going to have success. Many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So the reason... That the disciple of Christ must be on constant guard against being led astray is because there will be a proliferation of hucksters and con men who will come and they will claim to be the Messiah. They will claim to have an anointing. They will claim some special teaching. And they're going to have a lot of success. It's going to work. And of course the danger is that if you're following a false Messiah, you're no longer following the true Messiah. And so he's looking out for his disciples here. Now, there is here a specific warning against men who claim to be the Messiah, claimed some often a a deity or divinity, and they they lead people astray. This sort of thing was already happening in the days of the New Testament. In Acts chapter 5, we read this, verses 36 and 37. Gamaliel said, Before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. You see, men love a following. Men will do anything, say anything, claim anything just to get that following. History actually tells us Simon the magician from Acts chapter 8 was a man who claimed to be God. There were statues built for him. Even more specifically, during the burning of the temple in 70 A.D. by the Romans. There was a scene. That they finally got into the city. They're burning the temple. About 6,000 Jews died while they're burning the temple. Now, we hear that and we think, if it's on fire, run away, right? Move away from the heat. But listen to what Josephus says. And there were women and children. Everyone killed. He says, A false prophet was the occasion of these people's destruction who had made a public proclamation in the city that very day that God commanded them to get up on the temple and that there they should receive miraculous signs of their deliverance. And then he says, now there was then a great number of false prophets. In other words, a false prophet came and said, hey, God told me, let's all get on the temple. He's going to come and take us away. They set the temple on fire and 6,000 people were killed. So we have that specific warning against false Christ, but also within that there is a general warning, I think implicit in this, against anyone, any, any person who comes and claims any type of false anointing. They might not be so bold in our culture to say, I am the Christ. You see, we associate, most, most people in the Western world, associate the language of Christ with Jesus. It, it, it's a profanity to be used. And so they're not, they might not come to you and say, I'm Christ, because that would be synonymous with saying, I'm Jesus. But they might come with a false teaching. And they speak as if they should be followed. The word Christ means anointed one. There's another word, chrisma, not charisma, but chrisma, which is the anointing of a leader who would be followed. The the prophets and priests and kings of the Old Testament were, were very often anointed in this way with oil. They were chrismated. And so there are those today, especially in Pentecostal and charismatic circles, who claim to have a special anointing over and above others. And if they have a special anointing above yours, then they can claim revelation that you don't have. They can claim greater leadership insights that you don't have. They can claim that their teachings either supersede Scripture or at least the historic orthodox understanding of the Scriptures because they've got this special anointing. 1 John 2 and verse 20, John says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. Verse 27, But the anointing that you received comes, received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. John is referring to the fact that all Christians have the anointing. We have the same anointing. It's no longer oil poured out. It's the Holy Spirit poured out. We all have it. And John is not saying here that there are to be no teachers... That there aren't some with greater or lesser exercises of insight or illumination into the scriptures. If you believe that, read, read John Owen. And you will walk away saying, how does he see that? Why could I not see that? Because the man was gifted. There are greater and lesser gifts of insight. What he's saying is there is not a greater anointing that leads someone or gives someone the license to avoid, reject, deny. Sidestep Scripture, sidestep biblical authority structures, and say, "Well, you know, well, I don't have a church that's ordained me into an office, but I've got an anointing from the Holy Spirit." They're not going to be. There are not these people who have to be heated and honored above others because of a greater level of anointing. All Christians have the same anointing, the Spirit of Christ dwelling within them. That's what He says. You've received, the anointing you received abides in him, or in you. And you have no need that anyone would teach you. All Christians have that. So we can formally reject anyone who claims to have a greater anointing. So, in these verses, the good shepherd is leading in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. He's... He's doing this. He's warning against false Christs, false teachers who will lead His people or seek to lead His people away from the path of righteousness. He's warning His disciples. This is what's going to come. See, right now, you've spent three years with me. We've sort of been nestled together. We're living together. We're walking together. We're traveling together. And it's been there have been difficult times, but I've always been there right beside you for the most part. He's not going to be there. And they need to know what's coming. And when they see this proliferation of false Christ, they are not to think this is the end. It's not the end, verse 6. And Jesus even said in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And so the Lord's true sheep will not follow after false Christs and false teachers. But the Lord's true sheep have been given a duty and our lord here establishes what is to be the normal disposition of his disciples after his ascension namely one of alertness and skepticism with regard to teaching and teachers alertness and skepticism is to be the normal disposition. The regular, everyday worldview of the Christian is alertness and skepticism with regard to anything that claims to be truth, anything that claims to be Christian. Now we know from Scripture that truth has always had its accompanying falsehood. Genesis chapter 2. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis chapter 3. You shall not surely die. First truth, first error. Immediately. Truth always has accompanying falsehood. And falsehood, since the fall, is now the natural disposition of fallen men. Genesis 8, 21. God said, The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. No one has to teach a child to lie. Our natural disposition is error, falsehood. The mind, the human mind is fallen and untaught. And that's why Romans twelve two says that we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have to learn truth. We tend towards error, falsehood, unbelief, rejection of truth. You picture a race car going up in the curves. The only thing that keeps that car from sliding down into the the field there is the centrifugal force that pushes them up against the wall. Gravity is pushing them down and centrifugal force and their speed is pushing them up against the wall. And we could take that language of the force of gravity that brings everything down and we we could turn it into the phrase, this is not clever, the force of depravity. Our natural inclination is not upward to truth. It's downward into error. And therefore, God's people have always faced false teaching and false teachers. Again, that's the point of this section of the discourse. Is Jesus is saying, really, things are not going to change a whole lot. It's going to keep going the way it's been. Again, Satan in Genesis chapter 3 comes with lying and falsehood. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Notice he doesn't say false prophets are not going to have their signs and their wonders. They will and they'll lead you astray with them. He says, The Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 20, After prophesying that there would come a prophet from among the brothers who would speak the words of God, fulfilled in Christ, he says, The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And so even from ancient times, embedded in the law of God were these rules about false prophets. Men who claimed a false anointing. Jeremiah 29 and verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. Ezekiel 13 Verse 4, your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. Verse 6, they have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them. God's people have always faced false prophets, false teachers, false teaching. Always. And also, it's helpful to look at the New Testament and how the New Testament focuses on guarding against falsehood. Now, bear with me as I belabor this point. This is a hobby horse of mine that I do not get to ride nearly as often as I would like to. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride this, this thing just to prove a point. This is the point. Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 31. I know, Paul says, speaking to the Ephesian elders, I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. The beginning of verse 31. Romans 16, 17, and 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. What is it that causes division in the church? What is it that creates obstacles? Is it truth or is it error? Who create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Truth, while it may cause division between those who are right and those who are wrong, truth will never cause division between those who are right. It will always separate that which is true from that which is false. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. 2 Corinthians 11. Writing to the same church, verses 3 and 4. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Galatians 1, 8 and 9, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so I now say again if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Galatians 5, 7 8, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 12 I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. He's talking about the Judaizers teaching false doctrine. Ephesians 5, 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Philippians two sixteen. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain for you. Chapter 3, verse 2, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Again, the Judaizers. The church at Philippi. Colossians 2, 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, Let no one deceive you in any way. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. They don't care to teach lies because their consciences are seared. 2 Timothy 1:13, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Titus 1, 9 to 11. He must hold firm. This is uh, the, the qualification of an elder. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, again the Judaizers. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Hebrews thirteen nine. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. James 5, 19 to 20, My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. First Peter 5, 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Second Peter 2, 1-3, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets or false teachers among you. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. That's what Jesus said. They will lead many astray. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Notice this false teaching comes with it sensuality, the idea that your flesh can be can be titillated by the truth of God's word. With this truth comes, or this false teaching comes, greed. They want more money from what they're teaching, and so they'll exploit anyone and everyone to get it. First John three seven, little children, let no one deceive you. First John four one, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. 2 John 7-11, to 11, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Third John 9, 10 I've written something to you, or something to the church, but Diotrephes, pay attention here, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. He would not accept apostolic authority, which in our day would be rejecting the Scriptures. He says, so if I come, I will will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. That's good language to use, by the way. False teaching is wicked nonsense. Jude 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in. You notice that theme as well. Not only the warning, but the fact that they're going to creep in. They're going to slide in. They're going to come in unnoticed. It's just going to pop up out of nowhere and this false teaching comes out of their mouth. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of, God, of our God into sensuality. You see that theme as well. They turn grace into sensuality. They turn the grace of God into a license to please themselves. And they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude 8, yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority. That was Diotrephes' sin and blaspheme the glorious ones. Jude 18 and 19, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Revelation 2, 14, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Revelation 22, 18 and 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them... God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. It seems fairly unanimous, right? The only letter missing is Philemon, which would have been carried in the hand of Onesimus as he walked with Tychicus to the church at Colossae where Philemon was a member. And that same letter, the letter of the Colossians, would have been read to Philemon. And so we could say Philemon got it anyway, although not in his specific letter. Every single book in the New Testament... I didn't go through the Gospels, but it's there. We're actually studying Matthew. Every single book in the New Testament has a warning against false teaching... False teachers, every one of them. Now compare that with what is the present-day popular perspective on so-called Christian teaching—books, celebrity pastors, conference speakers, popular blogs, Christian movies. What's the perspective of the world, or oh, not even the world—the perspective of, of the so-called Christian culture? It's all great. It's all totally fine until I personally feel it's no longer useful to me. At which point, I'll not call it heresy. I'll just stop reading, stop watching, stop listening myself. But I will not say anything to anyone else about it because I don't want to push my view on someone else. That's, that's the present perspective present-day evangelical culture, which evangelical means nothing anymore. Evangelical is simply a marketing demographic for LifeWay, Hollywood, and conference planners. It doesn't mean anything. But in that culture, anything that calls itself Christian, that just appears to give a hat tip to the Bible or some vague Scriptural or spiritual concept is taken hook, line, and sinker as edifying. It's worth my money, it's worth my time, it's worth my promotion without giving a single solitary thought to whether or not it's actually biblical. Especially if the author means well in their delivery or they've been given a platform by the broader evangelical industrial complex or the intelligentsia if you want to use that language. Those ones who stand on the stage and tell us who to listen to, what to read, where to go to school and why we should believe this or that. If they've been given a platform by those I publish your book you publish my book. I'll write a review for yours you write a review for mine. I'll, I'll support your it's the same thing that happens in Taylorsville it's going on all over And if you believe that a teaching or a teacher is false, teaching something less than biblical, that's called falsehood, you dare not say anything to anyone without offending them. Now, why would that offend them, except that so called Christian truth is now just like truth in the secular culture? It's purely subjective, it's purely based on personal taste. And so if you disagree with my personal taste, well, you're disagreeing with me, and I'm offended by that. In other words, the evangelical culture has adopted the ways of the world, the worldview of the society. They just want to tie a little bit of Bible to it. They want to sprinkle some of the red letters on it to make it sound Christian. Now, that is a far cry from, watch out for those who create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Shine a light on that wicked nonsense and say, that's foolishness. The normal disposition of the disciple of Jesus Christ is to be one of alertness and skepticism with regard to teaching and teachers. In the court of law, men are innocent until proven guilty, but that does not come into teaching and teachers when it comes to Christian truth and Christian doctrine. Now, by way of application then, number one, see that no one leads you astray. This is your duty. It's your job. This is a work that every believer must set themselves to. Whether you realize it or not, the world around you is preaching to you a gospel. It's either the false gospel... Or a true gospel. Every song on the radio is preaching to you a gospel. Every sitcom, every commercial on television is preaching to you a gospel. Every advertisement that you drive by on the interstate or you walk by in the mall is preaching to you a gospel. Every pop psychology blog that tells you how to be a man or how to be a woman or how to be a mother or how to raise kids is preaching to you a gospel. Every outfit that you see someone wearing in public is preaching to you a gospel. Every new automobile that comes off the line is preaching to you a gospel. Every bit of it is designed to lead you astray. Every bit of it. If you think that's extreme, you're already failing at your duty to see to it that no one leads you astray. Because you've already been led to believe, contrary to Scripture, that some things are neutral. When Jesus said, whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever is not with me is against me. There is no neutral ground. And so you've already got the hook that says, well, people are generally good and society and marketing. Well, they have our best interest in mind. I mean, they really want us to have a dependable automobile. They really want us to be comfortable at the beach. And so they design this or that. No, they're preaching a gospel. They're, they're, it's designed to lead you astray. And so you have to work. And this is going to require self-determination. You have to determine this day and every day, I'm on guard against the philosophies and the empty deceit of this world. I'm watching. Now this, is, this tends to come across as almost a conspiracy theory, uh, you know, an X-Files type of thing. The truth is out there, but just out there somewhere. We do have truth. But we have to work. We don't get to let our guard down. It's going to require personal investment of time and effort. You're going to have to invest time into thinking and researching. I know that's that's really pushing the limits. You're going to have to build yourself up in the most holy faith to see that you're not captivated by a false faith. You're going to have to give attention to the task at hand. You can't be passive. You can't let your guard down. It's like a river. Everything's flowing toward destruction. If you stop swimming, you're going to go with it. You have to acknowledge the prevalence of falsehood. You have to know the difference, Spurgeon said, between right and almost right. And almost truth is a falsehood. And so you have to set yourself to this. Christ has given to the church elders who are able to teach what accords with sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it and so Ask. Hey, I heard about this. I saw this book. I saw this movie. What do you think about this? It would be my pleasure to give you my opinion on most of what is written, made, and all of that. Sometimes that ends up being the last advice that I'm asked by a church member. But, I would love to give it. See to it that no one leads you astray. Secondly, expect false Christs and false teachings. Christ clearly sets forth the principle... I believe we've sufficiently proven the New Testament establishes more firmly the principle. And so our attitude cannot be that falsehood is an anomaly. Like, whoa, somebody somebody said something that wasn't true. That's not our attitude. Our attitude is falsehood is the norm. False teachers will be more prevalent than truth teachers. There are more false teachers than there are truth teachers. And we live in a time like that of the Judges where everybody's doing what is right in his own eyes and everybody believes what is true in his own heart. And men have forgotten that the heart is deceitful above all else, desperately sick, that in due time men slide into error. So we have to have this attitude, expecting it. If you're walking through the woods on a narrow path and you have to step over a log and there's a sign that says, there is a copperhead coiled up on the back side of this log. How do you approach that log? Do you just pop over it like it's not there? Or do you take the time to look, to see, to verify, to watch out? How much attention do you give to the preventative care of your body? How much thought do you give to your surroundings when you come to church on the Lord's Day knowing that the, the week prior everybody had the flu or the stomach bug? If you're, if you're honest, you don't want to be here. You don't want to talk to anybody. You don't want to touch anybody. You're washing your hands, drinking hand sanitizer. You're taking vitamin C every couple of hours because you don't want to get sick. We have filters on our tap water. Can we not trust our tap water? We don't. How much more important... Is the health of your eternal soul than your physical body? All of that preventative care, see, paganism reverses those and says the body is to be exalted. Don't worry about what you can't see. How much more important, men, is the spiritual health of your wife than her physical body? How much more important, parents, is the physical health of your children or the the spiritual health of your children? over the physical health. And yet we take all of these cautions for our bodies. And yet how often are we taking caution for our spiritual growth? If we expect falsehood to be the prevailing attitude of fallen men, then we're going to be much more likely to go about our day seeing to it that we are not led astray. It's ultimately a question of whether or not you believe Scripture. If you believe that men are totally depraved, and that that is in the mind, if you believe that, then you're going to expect false Christ and false teaching. And to go about naively is just to reject what the Scripture says are true. So expect it. And then thirdly, know the true Christ and true teaching. Fake money is produced, why? Because real money has value. Fake leather is produced because why? Real leather is pretty and has value. People impersonate Elvis. Why? Because the real Elvis was famous and popular. So if we have this promise from our Lord that there will be false Christs, what does that say except that there is great value and great beauty and great glory in the true Christ? And how much greater... How much more should we aspire to be in the presence of the genuine and to constantly ward off that which is false? If men are teaching false teaching, if it's going forth, that's only because of the usefulness and the power that is in the truth. Now they might hate the truth because it exposes them and so they'll teach to contradict it. Or they want to mimic it because they see the influence that it gets them in the eyes of men. But again, how much more then would we want the genuine? Should we desire the genuine, the true Christ, true teaching? And of course, the most effective way to see to it that no one leads you astray from the true Christ and the truth of Christ is to be so consumed by truth... And to be so often in the presence of the true Christ that a counterfeit has no opportunity to lead you astray. The counterfeit comes, and all you have to do is look right here and see the genuine because you're right there in His presence at all times. The, the truth, the, the Word of Christ is abiding and dwelling in you. And so, truth doesn't have, uh, doesn't, or, or error doesn't find an empty spot to rest. You see, you're filled with truth, you're filled with the real thing. So know Christ in truth. We must know Christ in truth. We must know the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. Be students of the Scriptures. Every one of us should be studying to show ourselves approved. Able to navigate the Scriptures. We must know what the Scriptures say about Christ. Know Him in truth. But all of that will be useless unless we know Him in experience. Because of your fallen condition... Very often, objective truth takes a back seat to experience, or what we might call emotionalism. And so we say things like, well, I know the Bible says, but I feel with the LGBT LGBT issues. You, You have a believer who stands firm on the scriptures all the way down the line until, well, my niece is a lesbian. Well, I know the Bible says that, but you, you should meet her. You should know her. She really loves the Lord. No, she doesn't. She hates God. So this, uh, our, our experience often forces out objective truth. So as a believer, we have to labor to to understand not only the objective truth of the Scriptures concerning Christ, but also to experientially know Him alongside of that truth. To be taught by His truth about Him so that experience and objective truth are together in our experience of the Lord Jesus. And so we're meeting with Him through the objective truths of the Scriptures. We're talking to Him. We're sitting at His feet. We're regularly treasuring His gracious presence. And again, this is not emotionalism. It's not experience-driven. But when the heart is rightly informed by the Scriptures and the Spirit of the truth of God draws you nearer to Christ, you will grow in your knowledge of Him experientially. And again, a false Christ stands no, no chance at fooling you because you know Him in truth. Or you know Him in experience. And lastly, just practically. This is the most practical, but know Christ from proven sources. Spend your time, mostly in the Scriptures, in books about the Scriptures, from historic, orthodox, Protestant, Reformed commentators... But after that, spend your time in good books, not mediocre books. Study the old paths. Study men who have proven themselves. That generally means they're dead. And they made it out. And when that tree fell, everybody came and looked around and said, Yep, truth. It didn't depart. Don't waste time with questionable teachers. Life is too short. There's too much good to spend your time studying theology like chewing sunflower seeds. You do more work to get the seed off than you actually enjoy eating the seed. Or getting the, sh- the hole off than enjoy the seed. You just got to keep on eating and eating and eating. By the, the next day your jaw is sore. Because you've labored all day for a handful. That's not how we study theology. Life's too short. Again, after the scriptures, after commentaries on, on the scriptures... Find books that focus your attention on the person and the work of Christ and the gospel. Those are first priority. Once you master or, or are being mastered by the person and the work of Christ and the, the details of the gospel, then you can begin to venture out into other things. But start there. Maybe read two books at a time or, or seven or eight like I do. All, all at the same time. But start. Prioritize Old, proven paths of men who've written about the person and the work of Christ and the gospel. Well, the Lord's Supper is one place where we come every week to study the true Christ. We take the time to consider the bread. We think about that, the bread. This is my body, the human body of our Lord. The eternal God took upon Himself flesh, was found in human form. He he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He he bore our sins in His own body. So as we come to the Lord's table, we can see the, the, the full divinity of Christ, the full humanity of Christ in one person. We see the incarnation and humiliation of Christ. We see the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ in His own body for our sins. We consider the cup the blood of our Lord spilled to reconcile sinners to God. Christ died to vindicate the righteousness of God. We're reminded that He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That He bore the curse of sin into the grave for us in death. The blood of Christ represents His death on our behalf. So at the Lord's Supper, we're studying Christ every week. We're reminded of what a great Savior we have at the Lord's table. So think on these things, and then we'll we'll come to the table.